ハンドリッドハンドリッドハンドリッドハンドリッドハンドリッドハンドリッドハンドリッドハンドリッドハンドリッドハンドリッドハンドリッドハンドリッドハンドリッドハンドリッドハンドリッドハンドリッドハンド
on November 14, 1910, when Eli successfully took off from the cruise of Birmingham as she laid anchor in Hampton Roads, Virginia. This landmark flight was the brainchild of Captain Washington Irving Chambers, the Navy officer tasked with overseeing aviation matters for the sea service and a pioneer aircraft manufacturer called Glenn Curtis. From meetings at Belmont, Maryland in October 1910, there emerged a plan to fly an aircraft from a US Navy ship for which Chambers would demonstrate the value of airplanes to naval operations and for what Curtis hopefully would drum up some business. In fact, the ever astute entrepreneur Curtis was already engaged in arranging a ship to shore demonstration. Teaming with one of his early associates, John McCurdy had convinced the publishers of the New York World to offer a prize of $5,000, which in 1910 was a lot of money, to the first pilot to fly an aircraft from the deck of a Hamburg American American line ship at sea carrying a bag of mail and delivered over a distance of 50 miles to New York City. Accidental damage to the aircraft just prior to takeoff thwarted this flight attempt in November 11, 1910. Meanwhile, further south at the Norfolk Navy Yard, the sound of hammers could be heard on board Birmingham as carpenters assembled a wooden flight deck measuring uh, 85 foot long, which I guess is about 30 meters, which mm. isn't too long. How long was your uh, short field takeoff roughly? Uh, I think the short field takeoff, uh, actually, I'm not sure if it was for short, oh no, it would have been short field. It was like like 600. Okay. <laughs> well, this bit's just the wooden platform, so I dare say it had a yeah. little bit on the ship as well. But remember, this is not an aircraft carrier, yeah. so this is not a ship no. that's built for with a big platform for things to take off mm. on. So. so you can just imagine, I guess, some of the things that's going through his mind and the people's mind as they come to watch. But yeah, so they're building this uh, flight deck, this launch ramp, essentially 85 foot long, 25, 24 foot wide on the bow of the cruiser. Eugene arrived in Norfolk with his aeroplane on November 13th, and the following morning he watched the sailors gently lifted and placed it on the improvised flight deck. When Birmingham got underway before noon on November 14th, 1910, the plan was to steam into Chesapeake Bay and while underway, launch Eli, who would fly his plane a distance of approximately 50 miles. Yet as the cruiser reached the waters off Old Point Comfort, the weather became a factor with light wind, fog and rain. Not until 3pm, as Birmingham lay at anchor, did the weather begin to clear. Seizing the opportunity, Eli climbed aboard his flying machine, making the decision to take off despite the fact that Birmingham was not underway, which negated any extra lift he would have gotten from wind going over the deck. So to put that in perspective, modern day carriers get up to you know, anywhere between 20 and 30 knots mm -hmm. to get at least a 20 or 30 knot wind over yeah. the nose. And even there, I think there's, with the catapult launch speed and then the speed at which they need to get to i think there's about a 15 knot 20 knot difference between the speed they launch at and their stall speed yeah. so the margins are very very yeah. small but of course they don't have all the science behind that yeah. in this particular account it is like <laughs> wooden airplane uh, taken off a wooden platform sounded like a good idea at the time <laughs> yeah well why not <laughs> i guess someone had to be the first yeah <laughs> it wasn't going to be an a6 intruder or a raptor or anything like that at about a quarter after five the plane began its takeoff run down the deck which included a five degree angle down its end just 37 feet above the water feeling his wheels leave the deck eli instinctively dove towards the water in an effort to accumulate speed but miscalculated so I just want you to keep that at the back of your mind because he seems to have a problem with judging the dive and the pull out point and then it's described here in a newspaper account as looking like a heavy coarse saw had gone along its edge so he's come off the deck dived got up speed now not only have the wheels hit the water and you know kind of skimmed off they've actually hit the water and the props hit the water as well 
so the props um, chewing up all the water and all this spray and froth going up so much so that his goggles are obscured by all the salt spray and everything mm. uh, very close to the water uh, so with a damaged plane and the primary purpose of the flight demonstrating an airplane could take off from a ship I would say just barely I was going to say does that actually count? <laughs> I think it does well, can you imagine that scene though like you just yeah. watch this plane and like you see it come off the end of this ship mm. it hits the water there's like salt spray everything going everywhere and then next thing it kind of staggers out the other side <laughs> It's uh, unbelievable. One of, one of the three stooges. Yeah. <laughs> he quickly sought to put down on dry land as quickly as possible, landing on a beach not far from Fort Monroe after less than five minutes in the air during which he'd flown a distance under three miles. So that's pretty cool because if you think about it, 1910, I mean, the Wright mm. brothers were only flown, you know, what, eight years before, nine years before or something. What mm. year was that again? 1901 or something? Yeah, 1901, yeah. Yeah. Barely. Still in its infancy. Aviation's just a toddler, you mm. know, and these guys are throwing themselves off a ship. Now, the reason I wanted to bring out and just hold in our minds this miscalculation is when he was 24 years old, he completed another flight, an exhibition flight, uh, in 1911, and his plane was late pulling out of the dive, and he crashed. Now, somehow or another, he's managed to pull himself clear, but his neck was actually broken and he died a few minutes later. It's interesting because he threw himself off the ship there, mis miscalculated a bit with the water, and he's been doing dives or whatever, an exhibition, miscalculated again, and this time crumped it in mm -hmm. and unfortunately killed himself. So I just thought that was a little bit of a sad ending, but as with many of these pioneer aviators, that was always the risk. It was a massive risk, and he was prepared to take it. Mm -hmm. So... Pretty interesting kind of story, and I thought it kind of had a nice little connection to your short field takeoff advanced manoeuvre. But tell us a little bit about it anyway, Luke. Like, <laughs> oh, just no talk us through it. Nowhere near as exciting as that. Really um, nice spray, uh, yeah, frothing up. No prop strike. That was, that was pretty good. Uh, happy a bit with boring. That. We should yeah, probably finish no, the interview now. I know. Yeah, I can move on. Now. Just move on. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, it's probably the funnest thing I've ever done in an aeroplane. Right at the very start of the run, you're obviously pulling all the way back on the yoke, and the idea is to get your front gear off the ground as, as quick as possible. But you want to kind of just hold it off the ground and you end up pretty much doing this wheelie down the runway at, I don't know how much it is, was 50 knots, it'd be like 70 kilometres an hour or something. Like a wheelie, like you're a mono, as yeah. we know in the southern states. <laughs> well, mono's the other way around, mm. that's if you're like wheelbarrowing. Oh, no, down. in Victoria, mono's on oh, the back really? wheel. Yeah, on my drag star, it was always a mono. Uh, I'm with my mullet sure. as a teenager, <laughs> definitely on motorbike. What do you, what do you call it on uh, one wheel? Yeah, definitely a mono. Mono, yeah. mono. Uh, oh, maybe that times has changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three tricycle with the front of wheelbarrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember them doing it on the deliberately on the caribous. Remember that? Oh, I call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Well, I call that an endo. Endo on the front wheel. Yeah, that's an endo. Yeah. Oh, maybe this oh. could be a generational thing. Or it's a good thing we're together. just out of it. Yeah, it's a good know. thing we've resolved this for generations yeah. everywhere. Yeah, solving the big Endo. issues here at Cancel Sarwatch. <laughs> Endo, mono. What thing. was the other one? Wheelie. Wheel wheelbarrowing. <laughs> Moving swiftly along. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah. Right, so, you're doing a mono. <laughs> doing a, wheelie. a mono wheelie, a wheeling doing, mono. Doing a wheelie down the runway, hmm. and then your mains come off, and you check the nose down to stay in ground effect. So you're yep. now flying, uh, supposedly what, yeah. one or two feet so off the ground. Explain ground effect that people might not know. Um, well, that's a good question. I'm pretty sure that's PPL theory. I'm only on RPL at the well, moment. That, I know what it is, oh, but I don't know how no. to explain it. Oh, it's kind no. of like is it's kind of like the wind that comes off the wings is kind of like bouncing off the ground and pushing you up a bit more or something like that. So there's like a mm. higher pressure below the wing or something like. Well, that's interacting with the ground. Yeah, well, maybe we could save it for the next one, because the next one is actually first ground exam, first ground exam. <laughs> oh, so, so you, you Yeah, that was definitely not a question in the ground school. Mm. Well, IG yeah. for a helicopter's a bit different. Well, we won't, we won't go into it right now. 
we'll encourage our listeners to Google it themselves, and maybe we'll talk about it in first ground exam. But essentially, you get a little bit more lift yeah. benefit close to the ground. So. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, you do that, and then you accelerate up to your best angler climb speed, and you yank the nose up and, and climb off. It's just it's a, it's all over in about I don't know five or ten seconds, but it's really really fun because you're just yeah. sitting there balancing on your wheels, yeah. and then you're flying low to the ground, and then yeah. you're cranking it up really really high, and yeah, it was oh, it's excellent fun. <laughs> a fair bit of judgment required, decision making. Yeah, I think like on my first couple, it probably wasn't as efficient as it could have been because uh, I was really trying to hold the nose like way off the ground, but that's mm. just creating more drag than on your wings so it's kind of a fine balance between yeah. protecting your nose wheel still being aerodynamically smooth so that you can mm. accelerate as fast as possible mm. and Sam you've obviously conducted yeah. a few of those in your time yeah. and probably having studied aerodynamics and yeah. <laughs> all that sort of stuff what there? is ground effect there, there, there's another very very good advanced technique you can use in short field take a like a like use all the advantages of how birds fly yep. is that you waggle you do full full control of the elevators at like the wings flapping and instead of have holding full arc you get waggle it <laughs> either side of centre and it, it kind of gives you a bit uh, of a <laughs> I don't think this is legit <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I shouldn't laugh so loud. Damn. You have me going. I was like, oh, I'm not. I was like, no, about halfway through that, I was like, okay, I feel like I'm being played. Yeah. I'm just so naive. I just go, oh, wow, yeah, that's true. Can you explain that? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, when roughly, or, you know, can you remember one of your first advanced maneuvers with a short field takeoff? Like, well, well, what aircraft in, would that have been? In line with the theme today of Eli's mm. short field experience. You were inspired by that, weren't you? Oh, I, I was beside myself. <laughs> I thought that instead of things in wind geals, I'd talk about the instructor giving me a demonstration in July 1977. Well, mid names here. It was in a Pilatus Porter in Lima One oh, yeah. at Oki. And they've got Which two is a low-flying area. Low-flying area. Yeah. yeah. Still there. It just happens to have these two little strips. One goes up a, a double incline north-south, and the other one's off to the northwest, and it's a, a very short, very steep, probably 10 or 12 degrees, and it's only about <laughs> probably 200, 200 or 300 feet long. The the long one was used, or relatively long, was used primarily to land on and use the double slope, so that as you went over the slope, you had to put different control. On the final test, they would inevitably get you to land downhill on a on a double slope the first one was mild and the second one was quite steep so you had to be very careful you did the right thing but anyway i was getting a demonstration by the instructor first time out in the in the uh, area in the pilatus porter and they're just built like a brick dunny if anybody has not flown in one they should they're just an (laughs) an aviation icon Mm. anyway the the instructor's briefing me that we're going to go in there and we're on final approach. He says, right, oh, we're committed. And uh, he's doing appropriate things. And I'm already impressed. And we hadn't even landed. So next minute, this thing goes thump on the ground. And <laughs> he yells out, we have lost our tail well. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no. Holy, have we? Yeah. And, and he pulls this thing up to a, a halt and shuts it down. And sure enough, he landed a little bit short and a bit of a wash away and oh, caught the scissors something. on the front yeah. of the tail wheel and ripped it off. So uh, that was my introduction to a short field landing. Nice. Very interesting. Yeah, the porter was a magnificent aircraft. It kind of got phased out just as I was coming in. Mm. But interestingly, that same valley now at the top of the valley, not many people know there are actually porter strips in there anymore because mm. kind of history's moved on. But there's a house at the end that's kind of noise-sensitive area. Mm. Very, uh, guy was very upset and so upset, in fact, that he wrote in big uh, letters on his roof. I won't use the vernacular, but it was essentially F off you. <clears throat> <laughs> so we don't fly up there anymore. We fly around there. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, this particular uh, time they flew out a repair team. They strapped a lump of 4B2 or 4B4, whatever it was, on the back where the, where the tailwheel used to be. Mm turned it around and flew it back to Oakley. Yeah, and just skidded it on the ground. Well, I was at um, Swanburn flying Hueys and they would tell me there we would land on an oval, Aussie rules size oval, you know, drums. They say, oh yeah, Porters used to land here, so on an Aussie rules field and take yeah. off again. Yeah. Amazing. Wow. With enough wind. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the Nogra? No, no, I had it at uh, Swanburn in Perth oh, okay, in the yeah. west. Yeah, yeah. Nogra used to land there regularly. Yeah, Nogra as well. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Yeah. But with the Pilatus Porter, they had two sets of wheel. One was a reasonably small wheel, and the other one was a like a Tundra wheel, a mm-hmm. big soft wheel, soft tyre. And uh, if you had probably 15 knots or more on the nose, you could open up the uh, PT6, probably about two and a half to three turns of the wheel in your airborne. Oh, wow. And I can remember That's John cool. Marsden doing a demonstration, doing exactly that, and just getting, as soon as he got it airborne, just putting it at a 40... Yeah. 45 degree angle of bank turn <laughs> and, and people just couldn't believe that this possibly mm. do it and uh, the reactions to it were just amazing people would be laughing and some people would be crying and <laughs> just not the sort of thing you'd expect no, because it was something crying. that yeah, I could see people crying down. and uh, <laughs> I remember flying to the old Brisbane airport back in the 70s and we used to get on very well with the air traffic controllers mm. they'd regularly ask you if things were fairly quiet can you give us a demonstration of a short field takeoff or a short field landing this particular day, there was a, a couple of aircraft taxi down the taxiway, and they're at the holding point ready to take off. So I'm on final approach, and, the, and he said, after landing, take the first taxiway to the left. <laughs> I heard this story. So I came down there, set the tailwheel down on the on the keys, landed, put it in reverse, turned at the end of the keys, and faced directly towards the <laughs> DC-9 or whatever uh, it was. Waiting to come on. And the, and the air traffic controller came back on and said, smart ass, I meant, I meant the next one. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, that's excellent. So now in your Piper Tomahawk, yeah. you know what to do next weekend, don't you? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Well, like if I... Well, I have done short uh, soft field landings. On and the keys. On the keys, yeah. No, no, stopped on the keys. Oh, no, I haven't stopped on the keys. <laughs> no, no, no. no. My, my, so no. the keys, are the, like, they look like uh, white strips, like yeah. piano bars at the yeah. start of a runway. So yeah. you can imagine, what, what would that be? 20 feet? No, oh, no, it'd be longer than that. It's quite no, yeah, that'd be yeah. at Brisbane International level. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Probably be, what, 100 metres, 50? Yeah. Oh, 50 to 100 metres, yeah. Yeah, so pretty short. An Aussie rules field again, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, on my soft short field uh, landings, my goal is to always try and stop before the 500-foot marker. Oh, so cool. I can usually do that yeah. if I if I put it down literally right mm. just after the threshold. Can you actually get it right on the 500-foot marker? No, I get, no, I get it right bef- before. No, yeah. but can you aim to there so you actually land to a point? Oh, no, no. Oh. I have to touch down oh, on, okay. the, on the keys and then stop before the 500-foot oh, okay. marker. Oh, cool. yeah. Something to work on for yeah. the future. Yeah. We might move on with mine. I had a bit of a think about this. It wasn't so much short field takeoffs, but and I may have even told this story before, but it's worth telling again the first advanced maneuver for me was what we used to call unusual attitude recoveries and again no names no pack drill but essentially it was down at Tamworth and the whole idea was that we would recover from a UA unusual attitude so the aircraft would be put in any sort of attitude it might be on its side it might have the nose down it might have the nose up a more advanced one was the nose right up with no airspeed so the aircraft would keep accelerating to a certain point downwards and then you'd pull the nose up this is what the instructor would do bring the nose right up until all the airspeed bled off and just as it's bleeding off it's either going to go forward or backward and so he would then go right up handing over Adrian recover now and you had your head down the whole time and so I think I've recounted in other episodes where I used to get really sick air sick and so I was kind of struggling with that a bit and so you know you put your head down and he's throwing this thing all around getting disorientated and kind of get the cold clammy feeling starting to come mm. on 
and then you'd look up and he'd actually explained it in the brief with a little bit of a handy rule of thumb which didn't work for me on the day but it was basically if you looked up and you look at the airspeed and there's nothing on the airspeed indicator but the maker's name this is what you need to do you need to look for the blue wing I'm going, okay, blue wing, you've got that. And what he meant by that was as the aircraft's starting to either turn either way, because it might fall forward, but it might also turn a bit, is look for the wing that's in the sky, as in the blue sky, and roll to that rather than the ground. And so I think, okay, blue wing, blue wing, got that. And so he goes through his whole manoeuvre, throws it around, tosses it about, I look up, he goes, recover now, Adrian. I look up and look at the airspeed indicator. There's nothing on the airspeed indicator, but the maker's name, I'm going, okay, blue wing. And I'm looking at it's all cloudy sky. <laughs> and it's out over Tamworth and like all the fields are all kind of hazy and gray as well. And we go, oh. And what he'd said to me is, Adrian, whatever you do, or Parky, whatever you do, do not pull through. So what he meant by that was like basically pull back and pull it inverted and then keep pulling it all the way so you end up doing this kind of tail over flip and then pull out because it ends up you end up with a lot of g and everything mm. like that's better to push and so guess what i did <laughs> pull through as hard as i could <laughs> i basically panicked i was like bang like that and the nose came down and the airspeed just started you know like a stuka bomber kind of thing <laughs> this poor little ct for it and like all i could do once you committed like there's nothing else you can do you just got to keep pulling harder yeah. <laughs> so i'm pulling harder and my instructor who is a little bit aged at that time uh, just out the corner, I could actually feel the G, you know, where the uh, where you start to grey out a little bit, and you know, and I'm like, oh, and I remember my training, so I started doing the what's the manoeuvre called? Heimlich. Heim, yeah, or isn't that when someone? No, that's when someone's tricking you. Same feeling. Whatever yeah, it is, where you, you basically tense your guts up and your legs. Fighter pilots know all about, mm. and like you tense and so, and like, and I was pretty fit, so I didn't start, and I managed to stop it. I kept pointing through, but. Out of the corner of my eye, I could just see my instructor again, a little bit old and stuff, and his head had kind of fallen over like this oh, one. No. It was like a little bit of dribble. <laughs> I'm killing you, bro. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no. And so I pulled harder, and finally, <laughs> finally the machine, and we were at height. So there was no probably real danger, but... The prop hit the water. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the prop hit the water at the dam in the day. So I finally pulled out, and I'm thinking, oh, man, because my instructor could sometimes get a little bit angry, I guess, in the cockpit. I'm thinking, man, I'm going to get it this time. He's going to be all over me like a rash. And instead, he's kind of, like, woken up, and he's, like, looked at the G-meter, and he's, like, tapping the G-meter. And I think you're allowed, like, 6G or something, and it was, like, 5.8 or something. <laughs> and like, he's like, oh, no, that didn't feel that bad. I don't know how that happened. Anyway, let's go on to the next maneuver. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my first advanced maneuver. He, can't, he could hardly debrief you when he was unconscious. Yeah, yeah. that's hilarious. <laughs> now, he'll swear to this day that he didn't pass out, but I know what I saw. <laughs> anyway, so that was my first advanced, advanced manoeuvre. I guess, Sam, for you, like in 44 years, you've completed a lot of advanced manoeuvres. And I guess what are the three biggest sort of hazards that we should watch out for or three top things to remember when we're... When we're trying to get something done that perhaps we haven't done before and we know it might push the aircraft closer to its limits or even our own limits. Yeah. The notes that I've written down here, do I really know and fully understand what I'm about to do? Yeah. Uh, in your case there, you were you fully understood what you're going to do, but it turned well, out to be grey instead of <laughs> blue. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a bit of a worry. And do I have a bug out of the, uh, or a, another plan mm. when I'm committed to do it? And another another one which relates to well, both helicopters and fixed wing, depending on what job you're going to do later on, mm. is if I land, can I get out of the place? Mm. 
and mm. that that can be your surface if it's if it's a, a wet surface, for example, and muddy mm. or or soft. Yeah, you could quite easily You'll do a very easily, nice landing. Good but luck getting out. Yeah, yeah. Very, good luck getting out of there. Yeah, something that'll probably come up in later uh, episodes too is do I have enough room to do it? Mm. And by room to do the manoeuvre, that's different from helicopters and and fixed wing because mm. fi- fixed wing can carve out a lot of a lot of height when things get. A little bit confused mm-hmm. and helicopters well most of the time they operate close to the the grounds they're, they're probably the, the main points yeah I, I had very similar ones i was thinking always think two up like most people just think one up let's do the maneuver mm. and then we're done kind of thing but two up thinking means also what if thinking what if the engine fails at yeah, this point yeah. what if the engine it's probably a, in that case it's binary but what if the engine doesn't produce full power when mm. i expect it to what are my options and you know looking ahead there may be no options but there might also be just a nice break in the trees just to the left which you haven't actually pre-programmed yourself for but now you can because mm. you're thinking two up so yeah i agree with everything mm. sam said but just again to engage in that two up thinking even as you said sam with helicopters or aircraft getting into areas okay well i'm in there now well how am i going to get out and better yeah. to think about it before you yeah, do it. yeah sure. exactly and weather situations too i'm going to track via this route but what happens if that route is now clagged in where do i go what do i do can i get out again oh, mm. so that kind of two up thinking is really important and even with eugene eli here like it's easy to laugh at him but far out with the equipment that they had the resources that they had the knowledge that they had in 1910 to mm. he was thinking like he had um, pontoons for example mm. strapped to the aircraft just in case he didn't make it off the bottom so he was trying to think of everything mm-hmm. he just you know, it was the grey sky, the grey sky, blue wing kind of thing, or blue wing, grey sky, blue sky. <laughs> I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, it was, there was things mm. that you try to plan for, but he just wasn't aware mm. of. And obviously, that dive towards the water and, and the yeah. judgment required and the performance of the aircraft, he hadn't fully assessed, which is to be expected because yeah. he probably hadn't even been flying that long. Mm. A couple of things had come out of that too. Hindsight's always twenty twenty vision, but in those days, there they, he would have had very very limited flying experience at all, and mm. probably on. Only mm. one or two aircraft. You're saying instinctive flying, like you mm. you shouldn't should never uh, pull, should always push, mm. and that's what in certain situations uh, that wouldn't have been a natural mm. condition for him mm. to bunt over, like push the nose mm. down, because mm. there would have been a, an element of fear there. And with the adrenaline, there's a natural tendency to pull back. Yeah, that's a good uh, point. Mm. So he actually. Full marks to him. He'd, mm. He was doing exactly the right things mm. with a very, very limited mm. experience. He probably had less less experience flying than you have at your mm. stage. No, he would have, yeah. yeah. And an aircraft is far less, we joke about your tomahawk, but yeah. it's far less capable than your tomahawk. Mm. Mm. So amazing stuff. He, he may have also, I mean, we'll never know, but with the two crashes, one thing that came to my mind, he may have even had a problem with his eyesight or it may have just been something uh, with the judgment and the the lack of time on in a flying machine to mm. gain that judgment. That's a good point as well. Yeah. In fact, what I'd like to do in the future with episodes is get some aircraft accidents even from antiquity, so to mm. speak, and just go through them as professional pilots and mm. go, what do you think? And see what you just brought out there is yeah. a really good thing too. And yeah. they wouldn't have had medical examinations back then. Uh, when we go on to the next couple of episodes, we look at how they brought licensing in and one that was one of the mm. first things was medical examinations. Mm. So he could be right. Could have been a short sighted. Could have been half blind as a bat. Yeah. He wouldn't know. Yeah. I don't know how he can be half blind as a bat. You're either blind as a bat or hang on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, Luke. Did you have any other points or anything just out of that discussion there? No, I think kind of tricky for me, I guess, because I just don't have the backing of experience to have been in situations where it's got a little bit hairy. So yeah, you know, all I know to expect. Mm-hmm. You know, I know 
know that um, this is something that could go wrong, so I'm going to mm. think about this beforehand. Mm. Um, other mm. than just the basic stuff, like you know, before we take off or anything like that, you mentally or even out loud, yeah. if you don't have a, a passenger, mm. uh, go through. You know, what happens if you have an engine failure and you haven't taken off? What mm. happens if you have an engine mm. failure mm. but you've got runway left? What happens if you have an engine failure if you don't have any runway left? And yeah. just before taking off, you kind of run through all those things mm. so that you're primed and ready to mm. to do those things mm. uh, immediately. Yeah. The, the point that Adrian brought up before about two up, that'll come naturally when you become an instructor yourself. Mm. And the reason for that is you're, you're thinking not only for the trainee, but you're thinking for yourself, for your options as well. Yeah, yeah. And that's through fear because you've got somebody else trying to madly to kill you. Mm, mm, <laughs> two up comes naturally. Yeah. Now your uh, heart rate certainly doubles up at that point. So. Yeah. And you've got to stay cool at the same time. And yeah. Show that you're, Bedside yeah. manners, everything. Yeah. 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 Even though you're like... In, absolute you're, confidence in his ability. Yeah. Like inner voices going, ah! Out of voices. <laughs> yes, well, listen, we could probably have done a little bit better there. <laughs> well, now that you mention that, I feel like I've had a couple of those. We could have probably done that a little bit better moment. Yeah. So now I know they're thinking. <laughs> well, that's probably a good segue to finish off with, like, what's the most concern you've been on an advanced manoeuvre, Sam? Like, oh, right. Your dad's going to cop this. <laughs> oh, no yeah. names, no Patrick. <laughs> no day. names, no Patrick's. Except it's your dad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we were uh, it was on a an advanced sort it was night night vision goggles it was a test so it probably comes into a later later one as well but it was the final assessment on NVGs mm-hmm. the sortie was to you had a radio call you had to respond to a certain area to a casualty and pick them up at you know, night on NVGs and take them to the nearest hospital mm-hmm. So we were at the Shoalwater Bay training area north of Rockhampton and uh, the Clifftop Rescue. So all the did all the, everything right. And there's, so there's there's your dad, myself, and and a, and a loadmaster. So we zipped down to that spot and and uh, he did all the right things. And he's into wind. And trouble was he and the loadmaster could see exactly what was going on. I'm on the other side of the aircraft with the ocean. And it's no moon, no nothing. Mm. <laughs> you can, can imagine what I could see. Yeah. So I'm supposed to be assessing him and supervising and providing the the, uh, what-ifs and let's get out of here if we have to and save everybody's life. And I couldn't see anything. (laughs) And they couldn't understand. I'm going, go around, go around. (laughs) (laughs) They couldn't understand what was was wrong. So as we went around, I I explained to them that I was kind of useless to them. (laughs) Yeah. We never consider you useless. Yeah. But it is interesting once you take away that vision and all those visual cues as a helicopter pilot or any pilot, it gets very uncomfortable mm. because you're so dependent on your vision. And mm. we'll talk more about that in the future. Yeah, when you're well. signed for the aircraft and you're responsible, it becomes a big thing. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I think my probably the biggest concern for me was actually it's the surprise or the shock of what has been a normal routine flight and even a normal routine advanced maneuver. Because guess what? Over time, advanced maneuvers aren't advanced anymore because mm. you're just doing them all the time. And I was talking to the guys about this the other day and just saying apathy is an interesting thing because apathy doesn't come about by lack of activity or boredom. It does come about by that, but not that alone. It comes about by doing the same thing over and over again. So you can do something incredibly dangerous over and over and over again and it just, you know, that normalised deviation mm-hmm. over time, you just get used to it. For me, we often go out and do uh, air mobile assaults in teaching 
trainees in Blackhawks how to hold formation, how to land properly, how to land in slope areas and stuff. And on this particular day, we came in, and again, it was a pad that we've been into many, many times. And there was a slope that was about you know eight or nine degrees, which is it's big enough, but it's not massive for a Blackhawk. A Blackhawk can handle that okay as long as it's handled properly. Trouble is, when you're in formation, the trainees obviously got a whole bunch of things going on in their mm-hmm. head. They're looking at the other aircraft. They're trying to station keep. They're trying to not hit anything as they come in. It's very, very intense, high workload, and so station keeping was great. But then as we hit the ground or arrived on the ground, rather than from there just do a normal slope landing, which was what expected, he was still in the kind of hole, got to get in there real quick. So he's hit the slope, and then instead of nice, assertive, but not aggressive controls, the cyclic's going kind of left, right, and then the aircraft's doing all these pivoting things, and the loadies are crying out in fear. <laughs> and the, I was on the left, of course, and I saw the disc come down to about, I don't know, it must have been a couple of foot off the ground, because the, that's the way the yeah. slope was going. I'm like, oh, take it over. Okay, blogs, we could probably have done a little bit better there. <laughs> yeah. I, I just remember one, in, in along with the theme of short takeoffs and landings, uh, when the Nomads were, were brand new, John Marsden was giving me my uh, endorsement on it, and this particular one was a, an advanced manoeuvre, was a short field landing on the runway with a, with a specific area uh, nominated as the start and the stop mm-hmm. with one engine out and the idea was you came down there you landed immediately put the brakes on full yeah and, uh, and then try to keep it in a straight line I, I probably only had half a dozen hours on the on the aircraft at that time so I came whistling down there into Oakey I think it was landing on runway 14 mm-hmm. landed there full reverse and w- when the dust settled we, we taxied off to the kathunk 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 <laughs> a brand new brand new nomad and oh. the tyres have been completely flat nice. spotted right down nice. to the right down to the tubes. Oh no! <laughs> Two new tyres, thank uh, you very much. Wow! So but that was once again we we had no virtually no experience man. on the aircraft. Mm. We we're learning as we went along. Yeah, yeah, and you would have learned from that. I'm sure oh you yeah, didn't do it again. No. So hopefully, Luke, you can learn from today, and other people listening can learn yeah. as well. And hopefully, those people that aren't in the mm. aviation world can hear about some of our exciting ventures, even just being boring sort of, you know, aviators in a way. But maybe don't go and do what we said before, try and land on the keys and just... We trust uh, trust that you're more mature than that. And and don't don't apply full brakes before you actually land. It's not a good thing. (laughs) Think two up. All right, thanks, guys. That's good. Cancel Sawatch is the last radio call a pilot makes when a flight has landed safely. The SAR in Sawatch is an acronym for search and rescue. When a pilot radios Cancel Sawatch, they let air traffic services know they have landed safely and the search and rescue watch can be cancelled. If the flight has been flown safely and professionally, then the Cancel Sawatch call must surely epitomise the spirit of aviation because it will realistically represent the totality of a pilot's attitude, training, experience and wisdom in bringing the aircraft back home safely. Cancel Sarwatch, the call we hope every pilot makes, every flight, in the name of our podcast. Again, thanks for listening and don't forget to comment and rate us on iTunes and to visit us at www.cancelsarwatch.com where you'll find additional content to help you cancel Sarwatch. We can also be found on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hit your Cancel Sarwatch bookmark in about two weeks for our next episode.